0: Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We are Cole Fakes and Terry Fakes, and we're doing another Bible book overview today. We are getting close to halfway through the Bible. Wow. So we have tried to keep it pretty close between the Old Testament and the New Testament, although there's going to be a span where we have to do like 10 Old Testament books in a row, (laughs) I think. But uh, we're getting pretty close, and we're going through these books of the Bible for two reasons, really. Number one. Because we, we truly believe that life change happens as you read the Word of God. You can read a bunch of other good stuff. Uh, I think, as, as Spurgeon said, you can visit many good books but live in the Bible. And well we want to make it easier and easier and easier. If you're listening to our podcast, we want it to be easier for you to read your Bible. So that when you get into your quiet time, especially in some of these obscure places, like one of the places we're going today, that uh, you have your bearings. You know know the lay of the land. You may not understand everything that you read, and I certainly don't understand everything that I read in my Through the Bible plan, but it's nice to know where you're situated. It's nice to know what the themes are. It's nice to have some places where you can connect things. That's the first reason. And then the second reason is because we think worldview changes according to what God has revealed. So it's not just that you change uh, holistically by reading the Bible. It's that we want to learn to think Biblically, we want to think Christianly, and the way you do that is thinking the way that the Bible thinks because exactly the Bible is not just depositing information, as we talked about, we talked about praying the Psalms. The Bible really is training you with a different logic, it's a different kind of reasoning, it's a different set of priorities, different set of premises that we're reasoning from about the universe. And so, by going through these, we're expositing not just what it says but how it thinks, yes. you know, the mode of, uh, and style of thinking in the scriptures. And so today we're going to try to do that in the book of Malachi. And uh, this one, if you know anything about Malachi, you probably just know that it's the last book of the Old Testament. And that is what it's most famous for. But we are going to try to make some sense of a few other features of it today. So we always like to start these out by doing a little background information. Get us set, where are we in history? Where are
1: we in biblical history? who is this person that's written this book? What do you think? Good question. So let's situate this historically. I can't give you an exact answer, but can really bracket it within about a 50, 60 year period. So just a little bit of history, let's pick up at the exile. So you may remember that the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar invade Judah, Jerusalem, 586 BC. They destroy the temple, they burn Jerusalem, they haul off a lot of the Jews into exile back up into modern day Iraq. So they rule there from 586 until just, you know, another 40, 45 years later in 539 BC. The Persians from Iran conquer the Babylonians in Iraq. And when that happens, as Isaiah the prophet prophesied well before that time that it would happen, when that happened in 539, the Persian king said, you know, I don't really have an issue with you Jews. You guys want to go back to your homeland. And if you kind of want to rebuild your town, feel free, but you guys can leave, you're free to leave. You don't have to stay here in Iraq anymore. And so some of them did with Zerubbabel, you may remember that name, you know, they head back. And they go in a first wave and they come back to Jerusalem, which is destroyed. And one of the things they do is they begin in like 538, 537, of course they're settling, getting their houses, but then they begin to kind of put the temple back together, at least some little temple where they can begin to worship and follow God. And so they start on it and then they kind of get busy and they plant their fields and they build their houses. And along come Haggai, and Zechariah, two other prophetic books. And Haggai and Zechariah come to them uh, and say, listen, why have you stopped building the temple? Why are you building your nice houses and you're not building the temple? Well, they heard that message and they did. And in 516, so 20 year period here, they finish refurbishing the temple. Oh, it's nothing like Solomon's temple, but at least it can be used. And so they refurbished the temple in 516. Well, sometime between 516, when their zeal led them to finish up the temple and about 450, so about a 50, 60-year period here, they fall back into a lot of really bad practices. We know that around 450, uh, Ezra, the priest, and Nehemiah are going to come. You remember Ezra reads the law and the people weep saying, oh my goodness, we haven't been doing any of this. Well, sometime in that period, this letter is written, and it kind of calls them out for all the things that they've gotten back into. Now, as far as who wrote it, who's the prophet that told them this, Malachi could be an individual sometime between 516 and say the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in 450, and he could be reproaching them and bringing God's word to them saying, hey, look what you're doing that isn't faithful. But unfortunately, the word Malachi means my messenger." And so it's a generic kind of title. And so, for example, the Jews historically thought that Ezra wrote this. He gets there, again, somewhere around 450 BC, and says, my goodness, one generation has passed and you guys have fallen back into all these problems. So we aren't sure exactly who preached this, who wrote this, but it was either someone named Malachi or perhaps it was Ezra, but it was in that era of time as they were falling away from God.
0: Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question, and it doesn't ultimately matter very much. And, And this is kind of the interesting thing about the minor prophets. We typically don't know anything about the minor prophets. There are a few books where we know some things, but overall, we know very little about the messenger. And especially in Malachi, there are 47 of the 55 verses are direct address from God. There is not a lot of the messenger in this book. It's mostly God God speaking to his people. Mm -hmm. So the book is organized roughly into six speeches, and they're usually introduced by the phrase, thus says the Lord, or something, something, something says the Lord. Mm -hmm. And when you see that new uh, introduction of the speech, that's a dividing line. Um, You see that for the first time, you see that in, in verse two of chapter one, and you can mark those out throughout the rest of the book. Now, the themes of Malachi are interesting, and they go in uh, lockstep with the history. So if you uh, are looking for a little bit of the background, more than what we've covered here, just go listen to our Ezra and Nehemiah overviews. Because what happens is the people come back, as you're talking about, they rebuild, stop, rebuild the temple, they finish, they they re-ratify the covenant. Ezra reads on the little podium that was built for that special occasion— And then they begin to what we would call backslide for a generation. Mm
1: -hmm. And it just
0: gets worse and worse and worse. And in fact, the problems that we're dealing with here in Malachi are very similar to the ones that they're dealing with at the very end of Nehemiah. So you have intermarriage going on. You have faithlessness. You have just a general lack of observance of the covenants that God has made. You have a very atrophied people at the end of the Old Testament. Spiritually atrophied. And so that's going to be interesting because Malachi is the last book. It's the last book in our Old Testament, but it's chronologically the last or very close to the last time that we see the people of God and we hear the word of God before the New Testament begins. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we describe this as like the 400 years of silence. Right. Right. Um, and we don't mean silence in the sense that God wasn't doing anything. He just took 400 years off. Right. Just that we don't have any biblical books. There's tons of literature between Malachi and the Gospels. Right. Tons of literature. And uh, a lot of it very popular among the Jews. Mm-hmm. And you can read a lot of it now. A lot of it's readily available to right. read now. But in terms of the Bible, we see a very uh, a, a very week end to the people of God in the Old Testament, previewing the coming of the Messiah in the New Testament. And that's what I think the main theme of Malachi is, the spiritual atrophy of God's people and the promise of something new coming from God uh, when the Messiah comes.
1: You know, one of the things that to me emphasizes that, kind of jumping right to chapter 2 and the Lord talking to the priests is not only have the people fallen away, but the priests that are supposed to be teaching and calling to them have become corrupted. And it seems like that's the next level, if you will, of mm-hmm. corruption or spiritual atrophy. Is when the teachers themselves uh, have, have fallen. And in chapter 2, God speaks directly to the priests and said, you know, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take heart to give honor to my name, I will send a curse upon you, and even your blessings will be cursed. Mm-hmm. Uh, your offerings. He says, this is one of the more graphic <laughs> verses in verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offering. In other words, I'm not going to pay attention to your sacrifice. I will spread dung on your faces, and you shall be taken away with it. I mean, it's you don't tend to think of God using that earthy language, but he's like I want you to know how much I despise these practices. Yes,
0: things get very (laughs) PG-13 in some of these minor prophets. And, um, you know, at this point, God is fed up with the empty rituals Mm -hmm. of the people of Israel. And you see this in in chapter 1, verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you Mm -hmm. might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. You know, the prophetic office uh, throughout the Old Testament is very interesting because at points the prophets call people back to the ritual worship of God. Mm -hmm. But we see through that in a passage like this where what the prophet is doing is calling the people back to God. Right. Not just calling people back to the rituals. And this is a really important note. You could really preach uh, spiritual revival from Malachi because what God is so fed up with at this point is empty ritual, going through the motions. This is what we would call in today's world virtue signaling. Right. The Hebrew people, the Israelites, are virtue signaling their allegiance to God, but their hearts are very far from God. And you know what? This is, this is the funny thing about it is they're so lazy. It isn't even it isn't even Phariseeism, right? The Pharisees were trying a lot harder to look pious than these people were. These people are not pious and they're not even trying that hard to look pious. They are completely on autopilot uh, as a people and, and God is not having it. So notice what he says, that the righteous person the person that God desires is not someone who will offer right sacrifices in terms of the cultic aspect. It's someone who will shut the doors of this place and call people back to actually worshiping God. Because he goes on to say, I'm not like a household idol. You Mm -hmm. know, my name will be honored among the nations. He reminds them of that prophecy that he made to Abraham that, you know, this isn't just something fun to do on, on Saturday mornings. If you're, you know, Jewish, it's his name will be blessed. Among the nations. And so this is a really strong rebuke from God to the people of Israel. So much so that he's saying, I don't even want you to be doing the uh, rituals anymore because it is actually doing the reverse of what those things were made to do. It's making you more numb
1: as opposed to more alive. Right. The rebukes are strong here. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, "...when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, that is evil." He said, would you offer that to your governor? Mm -hmm. He says, then how can you offer it to me, you know, the Lord of the universe? He goes on in uh, further in chapter one, down in 13, he says, you bring what has been taken by violence. In other words, you steal things and then you come and offer them to me or it's lame or sick and that's your offering. He says, shall I accept that from your hand? For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations.
0: They've gotten to the point where, you know, when you're a kid sometimes on Christmas and you haven't gotten your parents anything for Christmas, and it's like Christmas Eve and you can't drive. You sound and like you speak you just, from experience. Th- this is what I've heard. And uh, you just get something from your house and wrap it up and give it to them, which is already theirs, and you didn't buy, and it's used, and you didn't want it. That's why I was sitting around, and you're willing to give it away. That's what's happening in Israel. It is, it's such a slap in the face mm-hmm. to God. Uh, and the problem is not just that they're not doing the rituals. The problem is they have no interest on a heart level in serving God, in being with God. It really is the end conclusion of what started in Genesis goes all the way through the history of the people. It is, right. If you could chronicle a downward slide, this is the bottom. Right. It's not just that they've been expelled from the face of God. It's that they don't even want back in. So at this point, they're fine being in the land of Nod. They're fine being in the land of wandering. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to have that cherubim posted there anymore because they don't even want back in. They don't don't want want to go back. They don't want to be with God. And this is the human condition. Right. Um, And and so it's pretty bleak. So what words of prophecy, what words of
1: uh, light do we have from Malachi? Well, it's a little bit bleak, but you know, the prophecy in chapter three is very famous Mm -hmm. and it starts in 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And then in three, he says, listen, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. But says verse two, who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears. Yeah, getting some of the power back
0: into their vision of God. You know, like I said, I think you could really preach, uh, or you can at least think about spiritual revival in Malachi because of the way that God addresses a dead people, Mm -hmm. and a dead and disinterested people. One of the commentators, I think this is in the Tyndall series, who I can't remember who does that volume, um, or, or in that volume, who does Malachi, but, you know, one of the things that they point out is there's a lot of father language in Malachi. And mm-hmm. you see that, for example, in verse 10 of chapter 2. Have we not all one father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Uh, you know, the antidote, to, the, the antidote to spiritual deadness is to know God as father, to know God relationally. And that's what this prophecy is. Not only will the Messiah come, but the purpose of the Messiah is to bring people back into relationship with God. And that's something that the people in the first century didn't get. Um, is that what Jesus came to do? Wasn't just fix the nation and, and sit back on the throne of David and conquer all the enemies of God on the earth. the The, the point was to reopen the way to God. And that's what these That's what these prophecies actually show. Now there is big judgment coming as well, which right. is the other Messianic prophecy we see in chapter four. Uh, there's judgment coming as well on the people of God, but Malachi uses a lot of really relational language to call people back to the Lord.
1: Yeah. You know, and it ends in four five and it says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. So that he's 400 years before this. And listen to this, send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of their father. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, why Elijah? I, I don't think that's uh, a coincidence because if you think about what Elijah did, if you remember the short version of this story, Ahab, bad king, marries Jezebel, Baal worshiper, and they turned the whole nation into Baal worship. Mm-hmm. Remember, they kept all those priests of Baal, etc. And uh, even though he's not the only faithful person left, Elijah says, I am the only prophet of God left because Ahab and Jezebel has killed the rest of them. In other words, the nation has gone off like you have here. And so Elijah was sent to turn them back to God. And you remember the great scene on the mountain, you know, where fire comes down, And he said, choose which day. How long will you limp between two opinions? Choose this day whom you're going to serve. If Baal's really God, serve him. But if Yahweh is God, if the Lord is God, serve him. And the people were silent. Mm. But he calls them back and he shows the power of God in the fire that came down from heaven. And then it ends with everybody shouting, Yahweh, he's really God. He literally calls them back from idolatry. And I think that this parallel with the... Messiah is exactly what you're saying. Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming to call the wanderers back home, back Mm -hmm. into relationship with God. And I think that's the significance, honestly, of the Elijah language. The whole John the Baptist is to take a historical character. But as usual, God has a backstory that if you know it, you go, oh my goodness, that is so Mm -hmm. powerful. That's so clever.
0: Yeah, the the prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus says the prophecy is fulfilled in John the Baptist. When mm-hmm. John comes, he preaches a baptism of repentance. Repent. The kingdom of God is coming, and that's very that's very consistent with what we see here. That repentance right. is needed, and you know the 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 way that John comes, like you said, lights up against this background. So even what he's wearing is similar to what Elijah wore. Exactly. He preaches a very similar. Message. And, uh, you know, here at the end, this is kind of the nice final word for Israel because this is the next time we see the scene open. You know, especially if you take Mark Mm -hmm. first, uh, you see John the Baptist appear across the Jordan and out in the wilderness proclaiming a return to the Lord. And he wasn't the only person that had proclaimed that. Uh, But what we know from reading the Gospels is he is the messenger that God was sending. It's like you
1: said with that 400 years of, it wasn't silence. It's almost like that's turning the page in God's mind from the last page of the Old Testament, assuming this really is like the last words in this book are, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord and he'll turn you back. And I literally, in my Bible, I turn the page to the New Testament. And what do I see? John the Baptist came preaching, Mm -hmm. repent for the kingdom of God is here. And there's a 400 year gap in there. But to God, it's turn the page, and here's mm-hmm. the fulfillment of that prophecy.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. What are some of the things that happened in that time period that uh, we should know about? If Between the turning of the page, yes. what are a few of the things that we should know about between Malachi and the New Testament?
1: Yeah, the uh, intertestamental period is really very interesting. There's a lot going on, but let's just start historically. So I told you at this time, the Persians were in charge and they were letting the Israelites go back. Now, the Israelites were struggling because they were a depressed people, meaning their their nation had been destroyed. They've got enemies on all sides. They're strangers in a strange land, if you will. And so they are struggling with that. And they struggle even more when Alexander the Great comes through and conquers the Persians. Now we're into the 300s and brings Greek culture with it. And as time goes on, the Greeks literally—they don't—they're uh, not happy for the Jews to just worship quietly on their own. They want them all to become Greeks, mm-hmm. and there is huge persecution of the Jews. They have to know that God has turned His face away. They see this whole time period as God's righteous judgment on them for their unfaithfulness, and they turn to God in this period, and there's a renewed interest. In God. And there's renewed writings about God in this period. And they know that this is happening to them because they've been unfaithful. And then the Romans come in and they get a little tolerance and a hundred years later, here comes Jesus. And so I think during that period, it was a very difficult 400 years for the Jews to mm-hmm. remain Jews and to remain faithful. But just like with Elijah, there's a little remnant of faithful Jews mm-hmm. when Jesus shows up. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things that
0: happens intertestamental, in the intertestamental period is the Maccabees. Right. And uh, if you've looked at a Catholic Bible or um, you know in the Apocrypha, you've seen uh, the books on the Maccabees. And those are good reading. We just don't think they're inspired. Right. Uh, but they're good reading. And they're faithful to history to a certain extent. Right. Of what was going on in this period where you had the greeks come in they're ruling they're oppressive you have this family of jews the maccabees rise up and judah the maccabee Kicks off the Greeks for a little while, That's right. and they have kind of a mini golden age again. It's like a second Restores David.
1: Restores the uh, temple, repurifies it, starts sacrificing. You can see that as not just a military uprising. If it were a military uprising, why restore the temple? Why mm-hmm. the sacrifice? They knew they needed to turn back to God. Yeah, the thing that the thing that I want to
0: mention here too is, in order to understand the New Testament, once you get into this Maccabean period. Uh, You also have a very important event in the background of all New Testament prophecy, which is Antiochus Epiphanes. Right. So you have a mini golden age, but you also have like a miniature dark age for the Jews as well, where the Greeks really hammer down. They come in, they sacrifice a pig on the altar. The abomination of that event.
1: Circumcision becomes punishable by death having a bible becomes punishable by death and by the way to historically situate this we move from malachi 400s early 400s to uh, antiochus epiphanes and the maccabees around 163 so they've they've had some trials but they come to a head with antiochus epiphanes that greek king Mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways he previews what is coming
0: after Christ, and, right. and this is where, and we'll do several episodes on this, we haven't really done many pr- prophetic books, but um, you know, you see places in the New Testament where they reference uh, the abomination, of, right. and in the back of your mind, the preview for that is this little age with the Maccabees, where you have something so terrible as sacrificing a pig on the altar in the temple... In the mini temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have something even worse coming. So I see this prophecy at the end of Malachi uh, where it says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. We typically think of that as the big judgment, right. you know, at the end of time. But when you see verse 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. That sounds a lot more like what happens in 70 A.D., right. where the temple is destroyed, just right. absolutely decimated. No stone left on another. And the Romans destroyed the temple at that point. Right. And that is after Christ comes. This is in 70 A.D. And so we, we'll, get, we'll get into this when we do some of the prophetic books as to whether or not that is the final day of the Lord that we should be expecting. Uh, and there's a final judgment at the end, or if that is really kind of just a preview in and of itself. But for the Jews at the time, prophecies that they had heard in Daniel and in Zechariah and mm-hmm. even in the last parts of Isaiah became a lot more vivid in the time between the two Testaments. That's why I think it's so politically charged in the in the New Testament. When you see them wanting to crown Jesus as king, Right. Exactly. they really want him to do what the... Uh, what the Maccabees had done. They really yes. want him to be David. They really want him to throw off the Romans and yet in 70 AD you see the worst destruction of the temple. And it goes with a lot of what Malachi is saying here. The return that he, that, that, that he's prophesying is not just a return to temple worship, right it is a return to God. Christ comes, brings about the ultimate return to God. And after that, any attempt to return to God through the temple is destroyed. There's no way. There's only one way to be with God. It's through Jesus.
1: Yeah. And if if the Jews needed any more convincing of that, the Romans settled that issue in 70 AD with the destruction. But it goes back to what you were talking about earlier is the Jews of this time were going through the motions, Mm -hmm. but they had no heart. Now you think about Jesus and you realize, oh my goodness, he kept the commandments, but he went further. Mm-hmm. You know, He basically said, I'm not saying don't kill. I'm saying don't hate. I'm not saying don't commit adultery. I'm saying don't lust. In other words, Jesus brings it back to the true heart uh, religion. And one thing I have to point out as a historian is here we are talking about a book, little book, Malachi, set in maybe 450 BC. And all of a sudden, as you hear this talk, you realize this fits into the whole narrative. Mm -hmm. The Bible doesn't have any puzzle pieces left over. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have any little books that just don't fit. They all fit into the redemptive story. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I want to end by talking about the remnant that you mentioned earlier, because I think that's probably the only glimpse of light other than the Messiah will come. And I've always loved verse 16 of chapter 3. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Even in the seasons where it is as poor religiously and uh, as lacking as it is in, in the book of Malachi, there are those, like in the days of Elijah, there are those who have stayed faithful to God, Mm -hmm. and God does not forget those people. You know, it would be, of all the times to be born a faithful Jew, this would be a pretty bad one. Right. But what he makes sure to mention is those who worship God are not forgotten. In fact, they're not just forgotten. They are written in a book of remembrance, which some people think is the book of life. Right. But anyway, a little book of remembrance, God's little book of remembrance is filled with the names of people who were faithful when everyone around them was unfaithful. And that's a really cool picture uh, of of what's going to happen to those who stay faithful, even in difficult times. And we see that again in in 4. The day is coming when uh, that shall set them ablaze, and you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked." for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord
1: of hosts." What do you think that refers to? Oh, that's, that is very interesting. I think that this whole prophecy is multiple fulfillment uh, in the sense that I do think some of this is talking about uh, the Maccabees. I think certain pieces of it are forecasting the Maccabees. But I really think uh, personally that in its early fulfillment, he's talking about those who are faithful And the destruction of the temple and all the things that the Romans are doing and the persecution can't stop you because you have found the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so the son of righteousness has risen with healing in its wings and you will go out leaping like calves from the stall. To me, it reminds me of the zeal of the early Christians. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think there's that. There's the end times, but I yes. certainly think and then, of that of course Jews, in a big sense, the end times it, it it feeds into that narrative that we were talking about earlier, where the Jews were expecting someone yes. to come and make this true, mm-hmm. and Jesus did come and make that true. You think about when it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, right? right? In Psalm one ten, it says, "Sit here until I make all your enemies a footstool at your feet." And that's what Jesus does. He tramples down all of his enemies in the right. age of the church and in his second coming. Right. And then at the end, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that's a fulfillment of this prophecy as well, that yes. the son of righteousness will come. And he won't just throw off Rome. And, we're, you know, in this case, they're thinking about the Persians and the Medes, or they're thinking about the Greeks later during the... Um, During the Maccabees But in the end The Messiah will come And do way more than that He really will trample down The enemies of God He really will remember He really will raise uh, The son of righteousness With healing in his wings For the people Who have been faithful to God And so even in the midst Of this very bleak situation Mm -hmm. At the end of the Old Testament There is still the same hope It's that same hope That you see in Genesis 3, 15 and 16 That at some point, someone will come and crush the head of the serpent. Right. And those who trust in God, those who call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. It's the same message. From the beginning to the middle to the end, uh, you are saved by trusting and waiting on God. And he never forgets those who wait and trust in him. Amen.